I'm Rob. And I'm Nate. And welcome back to Rob and Nate Record a Podcast. So we start the month of October, recording-wise, Yeah. and our Halloween episodes. We're going to get right into things with a film called Targets, made in 1967, released in 1968, and I'll have more to say about that. Yeah. I had first seen this film around four years ago. I was really impressed with it. I think this is probably the fourth or fifth time I've seen it. Really? I even bought a copy of it. I was so impressed with it. Wow. And I recall That's that relatively I relatively abnormal for you. I recall that I spoke with you about it, but I don't. I think water off a duck's back. I talked to you about so many movies. I, I don't think anything retained. There's so, a few things that stood out about this. Rob came into this basically blind. Yes. I, I said, you know, this is kind of a movie that it can be helpful to have some background, but I'm just going to th- throw you into it blind. You had no idea what to expect from this, and what on earth did you think of it? I'm really. I'm still not sure what to say. You're processing it. It's a film um, to process. It certainly is not what I expected. Even as the film was going, like the whole time the film's unfolding, this was not what I expected. Mm-hmm. Which is refreshing in, in a number of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, I certainly didn't expect the film to end the way it does. Yeah. I'm not sure what else to say right now. I'm uh, still like just... Yeah. It, it's got a... It's, it's really its own thing. It's hard to think of a film like this. Uh, mm-hmm. It's an interesting collision of styles and how this film came to be is actually a pretty interesting story so peter bogdanovich now in france they had a number of filmmakers that came from the world of uh, film criticism they were called the french new wave they started making films in the 50s and 60s we didn't really have so much of that in the united states with the exception of peter bogdanovich who was not really a film critic per se but he was more of a film scholar he uh, did lengthy interviews with and got friendships with and wrote books about the likes of Alfred Hitchcock and Orson Welles. And he was very well grounded in a, a broad knowledge of cinema, and he loved it. And that's what he wanted to do. And so he was based in the East Coast, but he decided to move out to the West Coast in the mid-60s to try to jumpstart a career as a filmmaker. And he was able to get a job with Roger Corman, who I quite love and who is still alive and still producing movies even today he's been doing that since the 1950s he's in his mid to late 90s at this point yeah still still very spry from the last interview i saw with him but corman hired bogdanovich to be an assistant and assistant director on a few things Uh, he helped him make a film called the wild angels which was a biker film that had Bruce Stern and Peter Fonda in it before Peter Fonda made the better-known Easy Rider. And he also, uh, Bogdanovich did, directed under a pseudonym, segments for a film called Voyage to the Planet of the Prehistoric Women, which was assembled from an old Soviet science fiction film, which had some English parts added to it, and then a few years later, Corman, being a man who loved to reuse material, said, well, let's just add some prehistoric women into the film. And uh, Peter, do you want to go and film the prehistoric women? So I'll do that. So after that was done, he's like, well, would you like to make your own film? Like, you're quite talented. I'd, I'd, I'd like to have you make, make a film. It's like, okay, yeah, absolutely. It's like, I got a couple conditions. Boris Karloff owes me two days of shooting from another project that we finished early. So I want you to use uh, 20 minutes or so of Boris Karloff. 20 minutes or so of an old film from 1963 I made called The Terror, uh, which you see throughout this film, and which I have seen in its entirety, and as you can probably gather, it's very, very plotting. It's people walking around a castle, talking around a castle. 
So that's 40 minutes. And then 40 minutes, get some other actors and film some other stuff. That was basically all the guidance Bogdanovich uh, came into with this. And he's like, well, what am I going to do with this? Um, how am I going to flesh this out? I mean, I, I don't have a nice castle set. I mean, how am I going to make this into a real movie? So sometime before, a friend of Bogdanovich's had suggested that he uh, make a movie about Charles Whitman, who was the man that shot all those people from the tower at the University of Texas in 1966. And so he said, why don't I make these two movies one movie? So we have kind of a framing story where Boris Karloff plays a version of himself, uh, in this case called Byron Orlock, who is an old-time horror movie star who's reduced to making these Roger Corman-type films. And Bogdanovich, the director, plays his director. Uh, they've just wrapped a film. They're going to have the premiere at a drive-in theater. And Bogdanovich wants to make another film with him that he says is going to be very different from the other things that you've made before. So this is a very meta film. But Orloff is like, I don't know if I want to keep making films. I think it's time that I retire. I'm, I'm an antique, this Victorian monster. The, the world today is far scarier than anything I can do. So you have this storyline building up to his uh, public appearance at the premiere at the drive-in theater. And then you have this other storyline that you know is going to be related, but at first is only very tangentially related. The, the uh, main character of that storyline Bobby Thompson Bobby Thompson played by Tim Mulkelly. Yeah, so he briefly uh, sees Orlock across the street when he was in a gun shop. And then we follow him. He's a man in his mid 20s. Uh he lives with his mother and his father in a house along with his wife, and something's off about this guy. He is he's obsessed with guns. He's having some kind of breakdown of some sort, and even he kind of recognizes it. He he mentions to his wife like something's wrong with me. I'm getting these weird thoughts. But nobody pays any attention to it. And he basically goes on a shooting spree. There are several different shooting spree uh, sequences culminating in the spree at the theater at, at in the dark where he's shooting from a little hole in the screen out into the parked cars. But there's a sequence earlier where he's shooting cars driving along the freeway from the top of a, an oil tower that's very kinetic. And then there's the scene where he kills his wife and he kills his mom, which is based on what uh, Whitman did, and it's kind of terrifying. It's got a really, quite the energy to it. It's, it's horrifying. It is, it is a modern horror film, and this film is a fascinating commentary on kind of a passing of the torch. It's interesting that this was made in 1968, and that this is more of a modern world, refl- seems to reflect more of a modern yeah, world. Yeah, the shootings, today. they make references to... to Problems with mass shootings, yeah, which we think of as being much more contemporary than the 1960s. Yeah. So you're watching this movie, you're trying to process it. What are some of the feelings or thoughts that went through? Well, your I thought mind? it was building and culminating to more of a final scene, and that he, per- I mean, they they seem to hint throughout the movie that he has a specific target, mm-hmm. uh, particularly by, seemingly Byron Orlock. That seems like it's set up th- from the beginning of the film. You know, who's played by Boris Karloff. And then it doesn't re- it doesn't end that way, and and it it caught me off guard when it came up. I expected as this movie built, I expected the ending was going to play out differently. Hmm. What were you thinking? Oh, I th- I assumed that that Byron Orlock was the target of his some form of rage or whatever, hmm. and that he was going to be trying to shoot Byron Orlock at the event, hmm. and then continue his mass shooting. After, you know, when it was really just kind of coincidence. 
that that they were there at the same time. That he was just the the driving theater was a place that he could hide. He hadn't even planned to do the shooting there. It was which, a place he could a, hide when he was being but pursued it, by police. But it almost hints that it's going to be there because he drives by the drive-in yeah. previously. It does and, set it up, but I but I don't think it was part of that character's like consciously planning. No, it, to it do turns that. out not to be. Yeah. But the way they set it up throughout the film, you, you expected that it was going to be, mm. or at least I did. Yeah, and it is building towards that from pretty. That early scene on. where, you know, as you mentioned, he's clearly in some form of breakdown. But that scene where he's Byron Orlock is approaching him in person and is, and on the screen, mm. you know, clearly causes him to snap. And yeah. that that was definitely not the ending I anticipated. So yeah. You're a little dumbfounded by this. You're not sure what to say about it yet. Yeah, I'm still processing this. I'm, I'm yeah. Did did it work for you? Was it? I mean, it's I I think I think it's scary in an existential way. It's not. Yes, it is scary in an existential way. It's not. I'm trying to think how to phrase this. It it's not terrifying throughout the course of the film per se. Mm-hmm. You know, the vast majority of this film is not yeah. terrifying in a traditional sense. Is the terror of banality? Yeah. Like, he's so casual. And when he kills his, his wife and his mom and the grocery delivery boy, yeah. how he moves them around and puts them on their beds, and then he's like, well, what do I do with the grocery delivery boy? He covers up the boy? stains on the floor. Yeah, covers up, clean, cleans up. Yeah. He hardly says a word. One thing that I thought was interesting about this film, especially in comparison to a more recent film, is it's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood quality. Because it's roughly the same area, it's roughly the same time period, and they make a... A lot of use of uh, what's the term for audio that's supposed to be audio that the characters are hearing? Ambient. Am- yeah. So you have a lot of music on the radio as well as like disc jockeys on the radio. You have TVs on in the background, like in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I assume, I mean, the the music that you play is not any recognizable songs, but it's music that sounds like music that would be on the radio in the 1960s. I assume most of that probably came from some kind of generic depository of audio that maybe Paramount owned or, yeah. or, or maybe not even them because the film was made independently for Corman and they did early screenings. It got really good notices and Bogdanovich is like, well, I think we can sell this to a major distributor and Bogdanovich or uh, Corman is like, that's fine. You know, obviously I get my share when, when you sell it. So they shopped it around and that's what kept it, uh, pushed it back for release from 1967 to 1968 because they were trying to find a big distributor, which they eventually got in Paramount. Yeah. The problem is that they got it in like March of 68 and then the Kennedy or the, the King and Kennedy shootings happened. And then like, Oh crap, we've got this shooting spree movie. What the heck do we do with this? So they released it quietly in August of 1968. It was in and out of theaters. Uh, they part of Paramount wanted to shelve it indefinitely because yeah. of the timing, uh, but it did get seen by the right people, including some of those that were involved in the making of Easy Rider, which was a huge hit right around that time. And it allowed Bogdanovich to get the financing for the film he really wanted to make, which was The Last Picture Show, which came out in 1971, which is the film that started his career. And Bogdanovich is still directing. Uh, he's had a, a varied career. Some of his better known ones being Paper Moon and The Cat's Meow. And he also is an actor. As he, you know, he, he cast, he had a, a different, a friend who he wanted to cast as the director, but he had a scheduling conflict. So he was like, I'll just play the director. And I think it's quite effective. What do you think about the chemistry between him and Karloff? I thought it worked. Yeah, it was fun. You know, it was kind of odd when they were in the studio, but the rest of the film, it works quite well. 
there's a scene where, uh, because Karloff tells everybody at the studio, it's like, I'm retiring. And Bogdanovich has got his hopes pinned on getting Karloff to star in his next film, which he keeps saying is going to be really different from what you've done before, and it's going to be very significant for me, which this film was. Yeah. Uh, and there's a scene where they have a drunken night in his hotel room, and they watch an actual Boris Karloff movie from 1931 called The Criminal Code, which they had to get rights from. I think Warner Brothers owned the rights to it, but he very specifically wanted The Criminal Code to be in the film because that was really Karloff's like first big film. Yeah. And this film... Targets would be the last screen appearance of Boris Karloff. Really? Yeah, he would have one other project that he would do before his death in early 1969, which was voice work on... Uh, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Yes. Mm. But you can tell in this film that he's not in the best of health. He really needs that cane that his his character uses. And there's a scene that if you watch it again, look for it. It's the scene after they, they wake up in the apartment and Karloff goes in the bath. Or actually, no, I think it's earlier. There's a scene in which his one of his legs is so noticeably crooked that if you look at it, you kind of like, Ugh, oh, Ugh. Hmm. yeah, I missed that. Yeah, it was pretty serious. Another another thing that I liked about this film is I like the supporting cast. N- nobody's amazing, but ev- everybody is what they need to be. And I rather liked uh, Arthur Peterson as Ed Laughlin, who's one of the publicity people. He's got that one scene at the dinner. Where he's just so, like, he hates himself. Yeah. And he just leaves an impression with very little screen time. He'd go on to be one of the leads on the series Soap in the late 70s and early 80s. And then I liked, and I'm going to mispronounce her name, Nancy Hoy, who plays Jenny, who is uh, Orloff's assistant. Yeah. And she's Chinese. Yeah. Chinese-American, I gather. And there's no reason why this character needs to be Chinese, but it's neat that she was. Yeah. And I imagine, I don't imagine it was written for that. I imagine he just probably saw her in pre-production and be like, you know, I'll cast her and I'll just change things, change a little bit of dialogue around. And yeah, and she's she's great in it. It's, I mean, the part's not that demanding, but she's, you know, good yeah. in it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's a solid film. It, it's, yeah, I, I don't know what else to say about it. I know. I, yeah. It does take some time to process, so it's not really... I'm sure you'll have more to say about it a few days than you do now. Yeah. That last sequence, the thing that, that sticks out to me is the one shot of the kid in the car looking at his dead dad. So our bad guy's up there shooting people out of the screen in the parked cars, and the word starts to kind of get out, but nobody can hear it because of the the, the audio, the yeah. sound. And they're like, there's, there's a, a sniper, a what? And they stick their head out, and the sniper gets them. And this poor kid is just doesn't know how to process that he's just seen his father shot dead in front of him. And that's there's a it's it's there's a terror to that. Uh and I think it's very effective. And having seen this before, uh and it's been probably two or three years since I've seen this probably two years since I've seen this. I was paying a special attention when they were showing the families and stuff getting you know, 'cause they're this is a family meet meet the horror icon. This yeah. will be a story for the kids to tell when they're older. Just seeing the families in the drive-in and seeing the drive-in is neat yeah uh, the way they were at that time yeah it was yeah the sets are good the the scenery you know the shots of the city they're all good yeah it's everything's framed well the shots of uh tim o'kelly playing bobby thompson it's all done well bobby thompson's very quiet yeah it's very quiet yeah yeah. i even liked his house I liked how mid-60s that house was. I liked the freaking double oven 
Yeah. And then the blue walls in his, his bedroom and that weird family portrait that was probably done by a relative because it's not very good, but it's very prominently displayed. And then you think about the aftermath for these characters. Well, I kept expecting something from Mr. You know, Robert Thompson Sr. played by James Brown coming home and discovering yeah. you know, the we scene never, the house. We never hear and, that. You know, and maybe tipping something off or trying to alert the police, you know, because he's left a note and things like that. And but you never, you never see that. And a note that he types in red ink on the typewriter. Yep. And there's also reference to a brother that lives in another community and has a wife and small child. Yep. This event ruins all of these people's lives. And you wonder what happens. Does Orloff really retire after this? I would assume so, unless he decides to make probably. one more for his friend. I assume he probably is is done after this. Yeah, I mean, how do, how do you how do you keep working after yeah. that? Although he's the hero because he's the one that, that because stops he, him. Yeah, he psychs him out and just he slaps him. He goes up to the shooter. The shooter is just c- confused by the fact that he's on the screen and in person, and he just slaps him. And I kind of love that because yeah. what else is this old man gonna do? Yeah, that was it. Was definitely a def- a different film. Definitely worth worth seeing. Yeah. But yeah, I, I still need to process this. I'm not even positive I want to rate this right now. Because mm. I'm still processing this. Mm. Well, I will rate it, uh, and we may go back, uh, possibly record more. But I would give this film what I gave it when I saw it, which is three and a half stars. And I'd probably give it a seven or an eight. It is, especially for... Like, I, we've talked, and I've talked about doing a Roger Corman month at some point. Who's He directed films, but he was more of a producer. This is really high-end for Roger Corbin. Yeah. Uh, this is very smart, and they use the budget extremely well in this film. There's a lot of uh, added production value by just the locations they choose to shoot at. The, the freeway scene. Yeah. They filmed that on an active freeway, and it looks like people are being shot on the freeway. I thought that was a very effective scene. I'm hard-pressed to really think of a weak spot in this film. Everything serves its purpose. It certainly everything does certainly serve its purpose, and it's not a particularly long film. This no, is it's only ninety about, minutes. Yeah, but even at that, it's the tempo feels like it's constantly building. Mm. I'm not sure in this moment that you ever get a sense of the tempo paying off in the end, but it's it's definitely building all the way to the end. Mm. Yeah, it's it's very well done. So I would definitely recommend this film. I will, I will recommend it, too. I, I, I'm trying to... Knee-jerk reaction right now, if I'm rating this right now, I'm going to give this three out of four stars, probably eight stars on the 10-star scale. Mm. That's my knee-jerk reaction, but I definitely would recommend this to, to people. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it's definitely worth seeing. Well, anything else? No. I'm Rob. I'm Nate. And this is Rob and Nate Record a Podcast. Okay. Beverage time. This. Cucumber soda. Why do you always pick out the weird and odd ones? I like the weird and odd ones. The guy told us we should stop doing the weird ones. But, you know, when you're hearing somebody try a root beer, I mean, how entertaining is that to listen to? You're going to hearing somebody try cucumber soda. There's some anticipation. I ha- I've not had this. I have no idea what this will taste like. Do you expect this will be better or worse than grass? I... Th- I think it'd be better than grass. I expect it would be too. I'm not sure that smells exactly like a cucumber, but it's not far off. That 
that is an odd flavor. It's got cucumber, but it's also not cucumber. What does it say? Y'all got your fixins? Yeah. <laughs> Lester's fixins. I guess this is a series of sodas. Didn't we do another one that had that saying? I think we did, yeah. Yeah? Flavored like things that you wouldn't think you'd flavor a soda to taste like. This is freaking weird. This is drinkable. This is not disgusting. It's not disgusting, but it's not good. I'm not sure that actually tastes like a cucumber or not. Yeah. It tastes like a cartoon version of a cucumber. Or an, either an under-ripened or an over-ripened cucumber. Like there's, there's, there's almost like a caricature of what a cucumber tastes like. Yeah. Ugh. All right. Cucumber soda. Would you recommend? No. Yeah, I don't think I could recommend it either. No. Are you going to buy this again? I might actually buy this again. Why? I don't know. I feel like I feel like if I had if I had a freaking six packs of this, I think by the end of it I'd like it. <laughs> Masochistic tendencies, yeah. huh? <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> All right. Enjoy. 1968, not 67. I will get into why I call it a 1967 film. 